Thank you, Danny. In light of the song that the choir sang, talked about love, love coming. If you go back to the beginning of time, we know that Adam and Eve chose not to be responsive to God. Hosea talks about the fact that Israel had turned their back on the Lord. And in Hosea, God is giving an illustration of him pursuing Israel in spite of the fact that they have prostituted themselves before false gods. And then we come to Christmas. We come to the time when we reflect on Christ's birth. Christ is love coming, pursuing, continuing to pursue humans. And as we reflect on Christ and reflect on what we have in him, we know that the enemy Satan wants to destroy, but Christ came to restore. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for the fact that down through the pages of history you have pursued humans. And the ultimate expression of your love was in the person of Christ. As we reflect on what we have in him or what we can have in him this morning, want to be open and sensitive to your word, to Christ and what he has done. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. The Duke of Norfolk once sent the King of England a priceless treasure as an expression of his love and concern. It was a Portland vase, a rare antique. And because the king of England wanted to share the treasure with his nation, he placed it in the British Museum. As a later, or at a later date, as the account goes, disaster came, and it began in the duke's own home. A servant puffed up with pride began to plan a plot to overthrow the duke. He was caught and dismissed from service. And eaten up with hatred, the servant vowed that he would get even with the duke. And his bitter mind began to conceive a plan that would distress the duke and his household. And the plan was to destroy the Portland vase that had been given to the king of England. The servant packed up and he left for England, left or went to London. And he went into the British Museum to observe where the Portland vase was. When the attendants were out of sight and there was no one around, he crawled over the barrier, grabbed the Portland vase and raised it over his head and smashed it to the floor. And it shattered into thousands of pieces. And within moments, some attendants came and he was taken into custody, but his evil work was done. The king, upon hearing of the tragedy, said, sweep the pieces up. Save every piece. I will see if I can find a man in England to restore the vase. They looked far and wide, and there was no one that could restore the vase. But in time, a distant relative of the one who made the vase was found, and he, over time, restored the vase gluing it back together piece by piece. When we think back to the beginning of 
scripture in Genesis, we have the enemy Satan taking God's creation and tempting Eve, deceiving Eve, and Adam being passive went along with Eve and they ate of the fruit, displaying a lack of trust in God. And we know that what God designed was basically shattered. And that shattering continued as Israel became a nation. Israel was disobedient. They were unresponsive to God. But Jesus Christ came to this earth, taking upon himself human form to live, to die, to rise from the dead. Not merely to restore, but to offer even beyond what would have been in Genesis. He took what Satan destroyed and he offers life to those who come to him in repentance and faith. And as you think down through the pages of history, the enemy Satan time and time again has attempted to destroy, distort God's love. Attempted to destroy and distort Christ and what he has done. And if you think about it very much, you can reflect on Christmas and you can look at Christmas from a world's perspective and see that God has allowed Satan to cause a lot of distortion when it comes to Christmas. But we're not going to talk about what has happened or what is happening in our world today, whether you use Happy Holidays or Merry Christmas. Or whether you get caught up with the giving and forget about Christ. I want to focus on the Gospel of John this morning and Christ and His coming. And invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. And as we look at a variety of passages in the Gospel of John, I want you to keep in mind that John can be illustrated with a picture. The picture is Christ. Surrounding the picture is a frame. The frame begins in Genesis 1, 1 through 18, that Jesus Christ is creator, he is deity, he is God in the flesh. The book ends with Christ coming from the dead, demonstrating that he is deity, he is creator, he is God in the flesh. Between Genesis 1, I'm sorry, John 1 and... John 21, we find the account of Jesus, what he did, miracles he performed, and a variety of other things, demonstrating that he was who he claimed to be. In John 1, in verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, through the Word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Skipping down to verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ was with God. In the beginning, through Christ, all things were made. He is life. He is light. But he was made flesh, and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled on the earth. 
Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 35. In the context, Jesus is talking about the fact that he is the bread of life. John 6 and verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Bread being a staple of life. He is life, the bread of life. John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, answered Christ, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. John 8 and verse 58. In the context of Jesus making claims about himself. John 8 and verse 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Identifying himself with God. When God said to Moses, Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God said, tell him I am that I am sent me. Christ is saying, I am. In John chapter 14 and verse 6. John 14 and verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You go back to the beginning of time. Satan destroyed. God pursued Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God pursued Israel. And ultimately, Christ came through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what did Christ do? He came to offer so much. Go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Jesus giving in the Gospels. Jesus gives to the repentant, believing sinner the right to become a child of God. John 1 and verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. So Christ came to the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, he came to the Jews, and the Jews did not recognize him. Rather, they crucified him. Yet... To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now think about that. Being able to be called a child of God. To those who received him. Receive means one recognizes sin in the need of a savior. Those who receive him. I have a need. I'm sinful. I'm separated from God. Christ came. It's a payment 
for my sin. See, it's kind of like having a gift. You give the gift to a child, and the child opens it. And the gift is a note that says, wisdom. And most children probably would throw it aside and say, wisdom, what's that? I don't need it, I do fine. That's the way most of us live by nature. I do fine in life, I don't need Christ. And they discard him, they throw him to the side. You know, a child who would receive a gift that implies wisdom will have to be taught of their need for wisdom. The sinner has to be taught, has to be convicted by the Spirit of their need of Christ. That's why the Spirit has to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment to those who receive him and to those who believe in him. Believe a dependency upon someone outside of themselves. They recognize their need. I'm in sin. I'm separated from God. Going back to the child, I need wisdom. To those who believe, I will trust in what someone else has done. To those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he, Christ, gives the right to become the children of God. We think about Christmas. We tend to think about a baby being born. Let's lay aside the baby being born. Let's think about deity coming among humanity in human form. And if you think about a baby, you're thinking about deity, laying aside the independent use of his deity to tabernacle among us, to live among us, so that we would have, could be given the right to become children of God. Do you ever think about who you are? Who you think you are makes a big difference in how you live and respond. If you're a repentant, believing sinner, think about yourself as a child of God. Became, became a child of God, you've been given the right to become a child of God. Makes a difference in how you shop. Because you won't just shop for a gift. You'll think about the person you're giving it to. What can I give to help them love God more, not merely to give a gift? How can I move them towards loving God and walking with God? I'm a child of God. Would a child of God buy this gift? Now just... It makes a difference in how we live and how we respond. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 29. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I met when I said, A man who comes after me surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. John says, look, the Lamb of God. Christ 
the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed to satisfy God's requirement for sin. Now, what is the requirement for sin? The requirement, the payment for sin is life. So in the Old Testament, what happened in the Old Testament? Sheep, goats, cattle were taken, and they were sacrificed for humans. Christ came as the ultimate sacrifice of atonement. Listen as I read from Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. God presented him, Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he left the sins committed before unpunished. The ones before referring to Old Testament. He did it to demonstrate justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So what happened? There's a payment for sin. The payment is life. If I'm to pay for sin, then I should die. But what did Christ do? He became the Lamb of God. He paid the penalty for me. He became my sacrifice. In a very small way, I think it can be illustrated. This goes back a couple years ago. I was eating in a local restaurant. And after eating on the way out, I went to pay my bill, and the cashier said, your bill has already been paid. I said, my bill has already been paid. Yes, she said, someone on their way out paid your bill. So I went walking out of the restaurant, and I thought, now who was in there that could have paid my bill? And I remember walking in and seeing someone that I knew, and I thought, well, maybe it was them. To this day, I don't know. That's what Jesus did. He paid your bill. He became the Lamb of God. who takes away the sin of the world. Again, I would challenge you not to think about Christmas as a mere babe in a manger. Think about deity coming among humanity. There's a lamb of God in the manger who went to the cross to take away the sin of the world. And I would pose a question. Have you accepted that payment? Have you received Christ? Have you confessed your need of a Savior? Have you confessed that you're in sin? You need someone to pay the penalty for you and trusted in the Lamb of God. Let's turn to John chapter 3. As we think about Christ and his coming... John 3 and verse 10. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in the context. Verse 10, he says, You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still people do not accept their testimony. 
I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of God. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus provides eternal life. Verse 15, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus provides eternal life for the one who receives him, for the one who repents of sin, the one who has faith in Christ or depends upon him. Eternal life. What is eternal life? To know God. And to know Christ. To know God. And to know Christ. We're not talking a head knowledge that we know about God and we know about Christ. Although that may be involved. We're not talking about knowing a bunch of facts about Jesus Christ although that may be involved. We're not talking about knowing a bunch of facts about God, although that may be involved. We're talking about an intimate, close relationship. One who has shared his life with us, who has become our life, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and one with whom we share our life because he is our life. The closest thing to that on this side of heaven that I can think about is my relationship with Ruth Ann and Ruth Ann's relationship with me. After 39 years of marriage, we're learning to be intimate, to share joys, to share struggles, to share heartaches, to share griefs, to accept one another, to bear with one another, to love one another. That relationship is to picture Christ in the church. That's just a little bit of what it means to have eternal life, to know God, to know Christ to experience God, to experience Christ, to share that life. An illustration of that life. There was one day this week I was quite angry and frustrated as I thought about the world in which we live and how our world tends to view Christmas. 
God already know, knew what I was thinking about and my frustration. So I just talked to him about it. I said, Lord, you know, I'm fed up. I'm really upset about how our world is and how we in our world celebrate Christmas. That's not what it's all about. And I went on and talked to him some about it, and I said, okay, Lord, now that's enough whining and complaining. Now what am I going to do about it? And the response from the Lord was, offer eternal life to those that you're frustrated at. That's why I came, to offer life eternal. I came to offer a relationship with myself, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now offer that with others. And how do you do that in our day-by-day living? Maybe taking your family to a soup kitchen rather than giving gifts and giving yourselves to someone else. Maybe rather than giving gifts within the family some year, you invite the homeless or some homeless or a widow or an orphan into your home and give them gifts. Or maybe you go into a restaurant and you look around and you say, I don't know very many of these people, but I'm going to pick out three and I'm going to say to the cashier, these three people, I'm paying for their meal. And when they come out, don't charge them, but don't tell them who paid for their meal. What are you trying to do? Give yourself away as Christ gave himself away. Trying to show the beauty of this relationship with the creator God, which may lead to an opportunity to share Christ with others. Another application of the eternal life that Christ offers. And I realize you probably purchased most of your gifts for Christmas already. But think about Christ's giving, God's giving at Christmas. He did not ask us what we want. He did not ask us what we desire. He observed us and saw our need. And he gave in light of our need. So when you think about giving gifts, maybe observe those that you give gifts to. And don't think about what they want, what they might desire, but what they need to live effectively for God's honor and God's glory and buy gifts accordingly. Because that's being God-like. Being Christ-like. Because he looked at our need. And he gave in light of our need. What was our need? Life. What did he give? Through Christ, eternal life. And as we think about that in the context of Christmas, what will prompt others, move others towards eternal life? Or if they have eternal life, what will help them to grow in their walk with God? And with Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. What does he offer? Water. Jesus answered in verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, 
But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up into eternal life. Christ offered to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, water. Living water. Life. As we think about Christmas, Satan distorted what God designed, but Christ came to give life. The steamer, Lady Elgin, was carrying 323 passengers. It was a chilly evening early in September. She was brilliant, brilliant brilliantly lit and loaded with travelers. Before the ship reached the port of Chicago, she began to sink. Before help could arrive, she would sink. The crowd watched from the shore, powerless to help. Two brothers, students in a theological seminary, plunged through the crowd with a rope in their hands. Nate the elder, a powerful man and a trained swimmer leaped into the waves, and inch by inch, he fought his way through the waves until he re- reached a sinking ship, climbed aboard, and with great strength carried a lady back to the shore. The arms of eager people welcomed the lady. Cold, choking, but strong, he plunged in again. And again, 23 lives were saved by Nate Spencer. For weeks he lay delirious. Meanwhile, the 23, whom he had saved, scattered to their homes. In time, the nation began to forget the tragedy of the 300 who died on Lake Michigan. But the 23, whom Nate had saved, would surely never forget. Surely they were grateful But not one came back to thank Nate Spencer for what he had done. Not one ever wrote him a letter. Nate Spencer lived out his life as an invalid. Not one of 23 people said, thank you. My question to you is, Christ did much more than Nate Spencer. Have you responded to him in repentance and faith? Is Christ your Lord? If not, why not trust him today? If he is, how are you and I giving to those in our severe of influence? Point them to Christ. Those who are believers to encourage them in their walk with Christ and in so doing expressing to God, thank you for the life that I have in Christ. Let's sing about Christ and what he has done as Travis comes to lead us.